it is um, sometimes, you know, you make a mistake or things. It's hard to be up in front of people, and I appreciate him, his willingness to do that for us. It's a great help uh, to us so we don't have to lead singing and, and preach uh, all of the same, in the same service. So I appreciate that. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 1. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the first seven verses of 2 Timothy and focused on verse 7. Today, I want to begin reading in verse 8 and read through verse 10 of 2 Timothy. In verse 8, we read, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, a loaded, loaded text, and we're going to break this down in, into three parts, uh, take each verse one at a time, and we'll go back and review the first seven verses to get us some context. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, that he'll open our, our minds and our eyes and ears today to his word. Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have to open your word, to learn from you. We thank you that we have uh, the preserved uh, holy scriptures that you've preserved down through the ages uh, that we have a source of absolute truth uh, in this world that we can turn to and uh, we ask that you would illuminate that word to us today through your holy spirit uh, working through uh, us and and in us as we look into your word uh, may everything that is said and be done to your honor and glory and uh, may we be changed and conform more to the image of your son by what we hear today uh, we thank you for each one who's here. Be with us through the rest of this service and as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, the first seven verses that we discussed uh, previously um, is the, the, just the salutation from Paul. He's writing this letter to Timothy and uh, he kind of has the standard, standard greeting there in the beginning of the of the chapter and then gets into Timothy's family and some of the things there and how he's thankful for him and the gift that he has and he asked him to stir up that gift that is in him uh, and then of course we spent most of our time on verse 7 for God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind and this is not by accident that Paul writes this to Timothy so uh, if you don't know much about Timothy well, we know a little bit about him and we can go back in Acts and other places and, and find some, some uh, things about Timothy. But it seems that Timothy was kind of a, a fearful guy. He was someone who was very timid, very uh, introverted. Uh, that, that's not my personality. Um, but we, we have a lot of different personalities in the church, and believers are not cut from the same cloth. Did you know that? We have some who have strengths in one area, some who have strengths in another. We have some people who are just outgoing and bold and, and probably to a fault. And then we have others who 
who are more introverted and maybe more fearful. And, and so Timothy, that, he had a lot of strengths. It's obvious because when Paul met Timothy, he said, I want him to go with me. I want him to come with me. So he definitely had a lot of strengths. But one of his weaknesses was that he was kind of fearful and introverted. So he writes this to Timothy on, on purpose. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we looked at that last time. And, and I'll go ahead and tell you that as I studied this, I really wanted to, to kind of take verse 7 and combine it all the way down to verse 10 and make this all one message. That was impossible. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. There was too much there in verse 7. So we kind of split that into two parts. But what we're studying today is tied very closely to verse 7. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Because when it's, you see the word therefore, you kind of have to go backwards and see, well, what is he talking about? Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Because God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So we're not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So we're going to break this into three parts. The first point is be not ashamed. The second is a salvation of purpose and grace. And three, life and immortality brought to light. So be not ashamed, a salvation of purpose and grace, and life and immortality brought to light. So as we studied last time, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Those are things that God has given us. So he tells us what he's not given us, and then he says, here's some things that I have given you. I've given you power, I've given you love, and I've given you sound mind. And so we're to use those things in his service, and, and because of those things that God has given us, we're not to be ashamed. So our, our first point is be not ashamed in verse 8. Paul says to Timothy that if he feels shame for testifying to the gospel, then he feels misplaced shame. That is not correct. <laughs> so if, if you ever feel that, now here's the, here's the truth of that. And I think sometimes we uh, preach on things like this and we don't acknowledge that that feeling is real. Did you know that sometimes you may feel that misplaced shame? You may, there may be something that kind of wells up in you that says, oh, I don't know if I should say anything on that or not. And I think this is primarily speaking about the gospel itself, but it's also just about the truth of uh, what Jesus said is right and wrong. It's about any of those issues. So we're going to look at some of those things. But this verse says that, um, the same verse says, and just kind of to get the, the whole verse in context, it says, also, that if we feel shame that a friend of ours is in prison for Jesus' sake, that that shame is also misplaced. So the world may see someone who's in trouble over a certain thing as, as negative, and they should be shamed because of it. But if it's because of something that they're standing on that is according to the word of God, we should not be ashamed of that at all. Uh, we should instead support them and, and not feel ashamed of them in any way. In, a, in uh, what Jesus says in Mark 8, uh, 38, uh, he says that if we're ashamed of him, what does he say about that? That if we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. That is, that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty strong, so this is a pretty big deal. Uh, to Jesus, this is a pretty big deal to the Apostle Paul. So 
let's let's break this down a little bit. The first part, I, I believe, and what it's clo most closely tied to is the gospel itself. So we should not be ashamed of the gospel itself. Well, what is the gospel? What does the word gospel mean? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So we should not be ashamed of our faith in the gospel, that Jesus Christ is who we serve. We should not be ashamed of him in his person. We should not be ashamed of his work, uh, what he accomplished for us. And we're going to break all of those things down in the next two verses. But we should not be ashamed of Jesus himself and the gospel, the good news of our salvation. And I think that's the, the primary meaning here. But there is also that we shouldn't be ashamed of his truth, uh, of his word. So let me give you some examples there. Uh, Jesus says in the scriptures, love your enemies. And see, others laugh at that and they call that unrealistic. They said, that's just being weak. Loving your enemies, that's just, that's weakness. And you should be ashamed of that. The popular culture would tell you that. And now we'll get a little more specific. God's word says homosexuality is an abomination. That's hard to talk about, isn't it? We don't talk about it a whole lot. It's uncomfortable. But God's word clearly says homosexuality is an abomination. It is not uh, according to God's truth. And popular culture and even some profession Christians, if you say that that's the truth, they're going to say you're out of date. You are, you're, you're not with the times. You are, you're archaic. That is something we've moved beyond. Well, we never move beyond God's holy word. We never move beyond it. And so young people, don't be ashamed to say God does not honor that in any way. That is, and there are churches who would say, you know, that that's not true. But the Bible stands uh, where the Bible stands, and we should not be ashamed of speaking that truth. Uh, and, and there's others as well. Um, big, big issue. Saving yourself from marriage is seen by many now as archaic and unrealistic. And yet look at all the problems that promiscuity has caused in our culture. So even from a non-religious view, even if you don't believe the Bible, that's a good thing to do. And it would save so many problems in our society and in our culture. And yet people say, oh, that's archaic. That's, that's ridiculous. You should be ashamed of that. And so uh, we don't speak up as we should many times on issues like that. Now, adults, I'm kind of focusing on the young people there a little bit, but adults, we don't get off the hook. Are you ashamed of politically charged but clearly biblical-based topics? Are you ashamed of those things? or Do you speak openly about them, or are you just kind of somebody who wants to avoid that? Because shame, it does two things. Sometimes it means that we say the wrong thing because we're ashamed, but sometimes it can be just that we stay silent. Do you know that? That can be shame, too. That means, well, I'm ashamed of this, so I'm just not going to say anything. Well, adults, some of these politically charged topics, abortion is a big one right now because of the law in Texas. Um, I've had several conversations with people lately because that law was passed and now it's, it's become a hot topic again. Well, what do you think about it and do you think that's right or wrong? Well, the Bible's pretty clear on that. The murder of babies is wrong. God said thou shalt not kill. And that's killing. It is murder. And so on abortion, that's not something that we should not be ashamed of to say that God uh, is for life. God is for uh, not murdering the unborn. What about critical race theory? Are we afraid to address the off-limits topic of race uh, through a biblical lens of partiality? Those are hard things. Uh, we know that sometimes if we do speak up, we may be labeled. We may, even though we're on the side of no partiality, we may still be labeled what? A racist if you speak up. So you're to be ashamed of that. If you were to speak up and say, that's wrong. 
separating ourselves into different groups of, of oppressors and the oppressed and all of these things, and the privileged and unprivileged, that's wrong. The Bible says we're not to have partiality, that we're all created in the image of God. That's not racism. That's biblical truth. So we shouldn't be ashamed of those things. Suffering and being reproached and made fun of as a Christian is not an occasion for shame, but actually what it is is an occasion for glorifying God. That brings God glory when we stand up for his truth. So it's not something that we should be ashamed of, but rather it's an occasion for glorifying God. Let's turn to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, that kind of reminds me of the passage in James. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And that's, it almost sounds counter, counterintuitive, right? He says here that if you are persecuted for the sake of truth, it says, let any, if any man suffer as a Christian, because he's a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. We should be thankful for that because it brings God glory. It's not about us. It's about him. And that's where the shame comes in, isn't it? That's the difference. Uh, the reason we feel ashamed is because we're focused on ourselves, not God and his truth. Uh, we should be willing to suffer whatever it may cause if we're standing on biblical truth. And yet what, what happens is we worry about how people are going to take it, um, how it's going to look to others, and so sometimes we, we stay quiet when we should speak up. So in other words, what 1 Peter 4, 16 is telling us is that the Bible criteria for what is well-placed shame and what is misplaced shame is not how foolish or how bad you look to men, but whether or not you bring honor to God. So young people, if, if you could just focus on that every morning, it would change your life. It would completely change your life. That I, what I'm going to do and what I'm going to stand on today, I'm not going to be concerned about what other people think about it and how they're going to view me. I'm going to be concerned with how God views what I do, and I want to bring honor to him. That is a, a life-changing thing. Well, then Paul says, nor of me his prisoner. So I think what this means is not only do we need to stand on biblical truth, we need to support those that do. We need to come together as Christians. How terrible is it that Christianity is as splintered as it is? Isn't that a terrible thing? Even on the things that we agree on, sometimes we don't come together because of our differences, because we do have some differences. But we should support those that do stand on truth. Don't abandon them on the battlefield. I couldn't help but think about it as I was studying this, you know, I don't know about you, I'm pretty upset about this whole Afghanistan thing, that we've got citizens of our country that have been left on a foreign battlefield, left behind. We don't do that as Americans. Well, we don't do that as Christians either. Right. We, don't leave, we don't leave men on the battlefield. We go and get them, and we go and support them. And so Paul says, yes, I've been in prison, and, and, and yes, you know, some people are going to try to shame you over that. Well, you're a follower of that guy who's he's in prison down there. Well, he said, don't be ashamed of that. I'm in prison because I'm a Christian. And so, therefore, it's nothing to be ashamed of. So we support those that stand for the truth as well. Be thou 
partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So first, in the first part of the verse, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So he says you should invite this kind of persecution into your life. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? But be a partaker of it. He says don't shy away from it. Don't be ashamed of it. Bring it in. Partake of it. Bring it into your life. That kind of persecution uh, is, is not something to be avoided. It's something to partake in. But be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So 2 Timothy 3.12, if you turn over a, a page or two in your Bible, and, and I noticed that Brother Kevin actually quoted this verse uh, this morning in his prayer, but 2 Timothy um, verse three, I'm chapter 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, it's actually a little bit concerning when I read that verse to me personally, and I can't speak for you. But look at the very first phrase in that. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It doesn't say that it comes on some people and it doesn't come on others. It says that it will happen. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And so here's why that's a little concerning to me. I don't feel like I'm that persecuted. I don't know what your thoughts are today, but I don't feel like a very persecuted person. So my assessment of that is then maybe I'm not living as though I should and being as vocal as I should about the truth of the gospel. Some of the lack of persecution in American Christianity today can be attributed to our unwillingness to boldly speak truth into a culture that desperately needs the truth of the gospel. I'm going to read that one more time. This is something I wrote down last night as I was thinking about it. Some of the lack of persecution in American Christianity today can be attributed to our unwillingness to boldly speak truth into a culture that desperately needs the truth of the gospel. And, and honestly, that comes from a place that is, it seems to be not a bad thing because what, the reason we don't do that is because we enjoy unity and we enjoy lack of conflict. We're scared of conflict. We're scared of offending others. And this country has gotten to a place where it's, it's completely and utterly ridiculous how much we're afraid of offending another person. Uh, we should never be afraid of offending another person if we're speaking the truth of the gospel. That should not, that should not come into our, into our calculus. Now, however, on the other hand, there is a way to speak and a way to go about things that's also very important. You know, we, should, we shouldn't beat people over the head. That's not what Jesus did. You know, he didn't go to the Pharisees and, and immediately, you know, just unload on them. But he also spoke the truth to them. Can you believe some of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees? Sometimes, you know, when they would ask a question, he, he had a, a really, and he didn't shy away from them uh, and didn't shy away from telling them the truth. First Peter 2, uh, let's turn there. Um, one of the key passages on this topic, First Peter chapter 2, <coughs> 21 through 23. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 
who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, now I told you I'm not a very um, timid person, and that's that, not my struggle. This is my struggle, absolutely. Uh, Jesus spoke the truth, but when he was reviled, he reviled not again. I'm, I'm somebody who, man, you come after me, my, you know, I, I get stirred up, and I'm coming back at you hard. Um, that's not... That's not good. That's something I have to battle with. But here, notice that it is in the very first part of that passage. He says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Christ is our example that we should do as he did, that we should follow in his steps. Now, in verse 22, that's impossible for us. He did no sin. He never misspoke. (laughs) He never said, anything that wasn't absolute truth. Isn't that amazing? There was a human being that lived on the earth that had all wisdom and all knowledge. He never spoke anything out of turn. He never, there was never an idle word. There was never anything that wasn't purposeful. I wish I could say that. You know, I, I, there's a lot of idle talk in my life um, and, and, and a lot of things that, you know, sometimes I say and then I, that was probably not the thing to say at that moment. Jesus never had that. And yet, he is our example. He is the one that we're to pattern after uh, in this not being ashamed and being willing to speak the truth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. See, it goes back to what I said earlier for, the, for young people, and it's true for all of us. If we get up in the morning and say, who I'm committed to is to God. The, the judgment that I care about is the judgment of God not the judgment of people here, then what a life-changing thing that would be. Because the truth is we are concerned about the judgment here. We are concerned about what people think here. And it, say, it keeps us sometimes from doing what we should do, which is uh, tell others the truth of God's word. Now, in Philippians 1.29, we're not going to turn there, but it says in that verse that it is given to us uh, not only to believe on Jesus Christ, but also to suffer. So it's a gift. It's something that's given to us, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. So we have the gift of suffering. Be not ashamed of the gospel. And we do that. How is that done? Uh, let's go back to our text there uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 8. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. That's a really important phrase at the end of this text here in verse 8. Because if we try to do all of this by saying, I'm going to speak truth into the culture and I'm going to set everybody straight and I'm, we're going to have failure is what's going to happen. We do this by the power of God. So it, it ties back into verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind where there's a way to where to go about that and it's through the power it's empowered by the holy spirit that is in us and that also what that protects us from is arrogance what is the number one thing people say about calvinists <laughs> i mean if you don't argue with a lot of people then you probably don't know this but they say man that's some arrogant people you know y'all just think you got it all right and and uh, and sometimes we probably act that way is part of that problem uh, it's not in our own strength. It's not what this protects us from is we understand where the power comes from and where the truth comes from. It's not our truth. 
and it's not our power. It's God's truth, and it's God's power that we then share with others. So that keeps us humble as we do share uh, the truth of the gospel. Now, secondly, we said uh, that this is a salvation of purpose and grace. So he says, be not ashamed of the gospel. Be not ashamed of me. And so he's going to define what that is just a little bit. A salvation of purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, I mean, what an amazing text. So we're just going to kind of go through phrase by phrase. Who has saved us and called us. So we know that what's under consideration here is our salvation. We should not be ashamed of this gospel, that God has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling. Um, I want to read a little bit of what John Gill said on this. He said, We should not be ashamed of his gospel, but should readily partake of the afflictions of it, depending on his power to support under them the covenant of grace determined by God before the world was made, in which God the Father chose his people, gave them to his Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to redeem them by his blood, and the Holy Spirit was determined to apply this sacrifice to all those chosen and redeemed. And this was all according to an eternal purpose. So our salvation is a salvation of purpose and not according to our works. That's the next thing he says, not according to our works. Neither salvation nor calling are according to the works of men. So we can't take any credit for it. So we're not to be ashamed of this gospel because it's not focused on us. Who's it focused on? It's all focused on God. And that's why we can not be ashamed of it. The design of salvation, the plan of salvation, all of those things come from God. So we're not to be ashamed of them. It says, but according to his own purpose and grace. Now, that is an amazing, just an amazing statement. It says, according to his own purpose and grace. So before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, before you and I existed, before this earth that we live on existed, God had salvation planned. He, he in, his, uh, in his own counsel, uh, had made the way of salvation. He, he designed, he purposed to save a people. And then Jesus Christ purposed to come into the world to pay the price for that. And the Holy Spirit purposed to then apply that sacrifice to us. All of that happened before the world even was made. The Bible teaches that very clearly. It's salvation is the purpose and grace of God. Nothing outside of God could move him to do it. So it's a sovereign grace. It is of some men and not all. So it's distinguishing grace. And it is of sinners and so it is free grace. So we cannot supply anything for our salvation. We don't bring anything to the table. So is this gospel good and this good news worthy of suffering and persecution to defend? Paul says, Timothy, it's worth it to defend it. (laughs) This is a salvation. That's what he's going into here in verse 9. He's saying, I'm telling you not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, so let me tell you a little bit about that gospel. 
God who has saved us and who has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So man fell into sin in the garden, and sin and death passed upon all men. God chose a definite number to redeem before the world began, not based on future behavior or future choices, but based entirely on his sovereign purpose and grace. Christ came into creation, lived a perfect and sinless life, humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, became sin for his people, carried their sins to the cross. And there on the cross he paid the price of our rebellion against God. Every sin on him was laid. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished redemption for every single one that was given to him. Now, is that anything to be ashamed of? It's not to me. That's the best thing I've ever heard. And, I, and I'll, I'll stand on that until the day that I die. That's what I believe. I believe that that's what happened in salvation. And now our next verse is going to tell how that's applied. But that is the salvation that he's talking about. That's the gospel that we're not to be ashamed of. Now, you heard, you heard what I just went through. The fall of man. Total depravity. I want to put some terms with it for you. The fall of man in, in the garden. Total depravity. We are all sinners before a holy God. Election. God chose a definite number to redeem before the world began, not based on future behavior or choices, but based entirely on his purpose and grace and his love for his people. Christ came into creation and lived a perfect and sinless life, humbled himself, became sin for his people, and took those sins and nailed them to his cross. That's atonement. That's the atonement. And we believe it's a limited atonement. I, I think the better term is particular redemption. He, he, there was a definite number of people that Christ paid, literally took the place of and paid the price for. So why do I put those doctrinal terms with it? Because that's nothing to be ashamed of. If you're at school and people say, well, what do you believe? Here's what I believe. Well, some people are going to say, well, how can you believe in a God like that who doesn't love every single human being and who didn't die for every single human being? Well, don't be ashamed of that. The Bible teaches that God accomplished salvation. He accomplished it. He didn't make it possible. He made it all the way. John Owen's three statements on the atonement go like this. Number one, Christ died for all the sins of all men. Well, if that's true, then what is the eternal destiny of all men? If Christ died for all the sins of all men, what's the eternal destiny of all men? They're all saved. Because Christ died for their sins and he accomplished salvation for them, then they're all saved. Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Well, this is a really depressing one. Because if Christ only died for some of the sins of all men, then are all lost. Then no one is going to be in heaven with him. And we know that's not true. Because the Bible says that there's going to be those in heaven with him. Then number three, of course, and this is what we would believe. Christ died for all the sins of some men and because of that they'll be with him in glory and he is just in doing that because he's a sovereign god you know romans 9 is hard for some people to swallow because what romans 9 is really all about is that god's the creator and we're the creature and we don't like that we want to be the creator we want to be the person who is in charge but when we ask that question does the potter not have power over the clay uh, that that's a question that 
only has one answer, yes. The creator does have control over his creation. So the covenant of grace, 1 Peter 1, 2. Let's turn there. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. There you have all three members of the Trinity in one verse. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you. So you have all three members of the Trinity there uh, and, and the salvation that they accomplish for the people of God. Now that where it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God, we've, we've talked about that here before. We've preached on that before. That's not talking about that God looked down through time. That's, that's poor exegesis. If you ever hear anybody say that, that's a real easy fix. You just go and look up the word. What does it mean? Um, it means that God had, he knew us. He had a, a relationship with us before. It doesn't mean that he looked down through time to see what you would do. Um, that is so easily debunked, even, even from a logical standpoint. If you say that somebody's choice made you make a choice, who really had the choice? Only this person. <laughs> if you have to react to their choice, you don't have a choice. So then God didn't elect anybody. He just let them elect themselves. Uh, that's, that's even a logical problem. So that doesn't mean he looked down through time. But he chose a people. Christ redeemed them with his blood. And then the Holy Spirit applies that sacrifice to his people. Um, Matthew one twenty one. He shall save his people from their sins. It's a, it's a definite. It's not something that's made possible. He came to give them eternal life. John 17, those that were given to him by the Father. That's who, who's under consideration there. So the death of Jesus Christ actually did accomplish salvation. I think that's so important for us to focus on because of what we believe. Uh, I've had some really good talks with uh, some of the people at, at my school and I'll leave them unnamed, but uh, since this video goes on to the Internet and some of them watch this, but I've had some really good conversations with them, and, and really that's what we've been focused on is you know, just me simply asking the question, what do you believe Jesus actually accomplished on the cross? What, what do you believe he actually accomplished, that, that he got it done? Is there anything? Or did he just make a lot of things possible and then it's just up to us? Or did he actually accomplish, I mean finish anything on the cross? Because I believe he clearly, there must be something, because what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. So I believe that the death of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary death. Uh, we've talked about this before, too. Basketball is my favorite sport. Coached it. Love it. When you substitute in a basketball game, what happens? Somebody comes off the bench. They go in the game. But does that person stay? <laughs> No, they come off. They, they, they get off and they go sit on the bench. So that's what substitution is. You take the place of someone in the game. Jesus Christ took our place under the wrath of God. He paid that price, but it was specific. When a sub goes in, it's for a particular person. You say, I'm going in for number 20. Number 20 is going out. It's specific. Christ specifically was a substitute for the elect, and, and he actually paid for their sins there there was an actual transaction that took place there and our sins have been paid he died for the church purchased her with his own blood in acts 20 28 
Uh, Christ didn't make reconciliation possible. It says in Romans 5 that we were reconciled to God by him. So all of those things point us to the fact that he accomplished salvation for us. If you've never, if you've never seen this book, uh, John Murray wrote a book entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I would encourage you to get that book and read it. it, it is, it's really good. Um, and also there's some others, but uh, I love this, this illustration as well. Lorraine Botner is, is where this came from, I believe. He described general atonement as a wide bridge that goes halfway across a great chasm. Limited atonement is a narrower bridge that goes all the way across. Well, that's what I believe Jesus accomplished. He bridged the gap completely. He didn't make a half, half a way bridge and then you have to complete the construction. He finished the job and he sat down. Hebrews 1.3 says he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work was completed. He had purged our sins uh, and, and accomplished our salvation. So now that we've heard about this great salvation, let's kind of tie that back in. Is that anything to be ashamed of? Is that anything we should shy away from telling everyone that we know about? Uh, and, and look, this is difficult because this is even, I believe, there's kind of two parts to this. There's the unbeliever who we are sometimes ashamed to even talk about the gospel to. But then there's also other believers who uh, we want to share truth with and, and, and get them in a closer walk with Jesus Christ by understanding true biblical truth. Um, now, and I do think one is more important than the other. I don't mind telling you that. I think this is more important for us to not be ashamed of the gospel to the unbeliever. Uh, that is more important. And I think as primitive Baptists, a lot of our problem has been we focus too much on having theological arguments with people rather than going and sharing the gospel to the lost and, and being so concerned about that. But both of those things are important, and I believe that is clearly what, what, Timothy, I mean, what Paul is telling us here uh, as he writes to Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to share this great salvation that we just heard about in, in short summary in, in verse 9. Now in verse 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So life and immortality brought to light. So what we talked about previously was election, oh well, total depravity and election and atonement and all of the, what a wonderful subject all of those things are. But you know that if, it's, if it stopped there, and those things were not applied to us, then that wouldn't be very good news. It has to be applied to us. We have to know it, understand it, uh, be able to see it, and for it to be applied to us individually. So what, what we believe uh, about that topic, where it says that, and, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, is that the Holy Spirit will effectually call each one of God's chosen people to faith and repentance. That's what we believe. God's Holy Spirit is going to apply all of those things that we just talked about to the individual Christian, the believer. Uh, he's going to apply those things to us. He's going to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's accomplished in two parts. So the effectual call, this is the way I structure this conversation, and and it, it can be complicated, and I understand that, but I think it's extremely important. The effectual call is really accomplished in two parts, regeneration and conversion. And regeneration is only the work of the Holy Spirit without the cooperation of the sinner. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. It's pretty plain. 
We are dead in trespasses and in sin. So if you wanted to go uh, resurrect a dead man, is he going to help you in that? You know, if, if you had certain chemicals that you had to use, is he going to sit up and hold one for you while you're mixing the others? And No, he's dead. He cannot help you at all. Well, that's the situation that you and I are in because of the fall. Because we are sinners by nature and by action, we are dead in tre- trespasses and in sins. So we are not cooperative at all with the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We are dead in trespasses and sin, therefore cannot cooperate with the Spirit. This calling is of the Spirit and cannot be thwarted by mere human ability. That's an important little statement on the end of that. I love that. Did you know that we can't thwart the work of the Holy Spirit? There's people that believe that, that you can resist it, that you can say, you know what? No, thank you. The Holy Spirit comes, but you say, uh, I, don't, I don't want any of that. That's not true. It cannot be thwarted by mere human ability because what takes place there is he comes into the life of uh, the believer. He comes into, they're not a believer yet, but he comes into the life of the elect and he makes spiritual life where there's nothing but death. He creates life out of nothing. Now, who's the only person you've ever heard of that can do that? God. God, when he created the world, he didn't use any materials. He didn't ask us for our help. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he created the land and the water and the universe. It's just amazing to think about the massive universe that God created, and he spoke it into existence. Well, it's no different with us. When we're brought from death to life, it is purely by the ability of the Holy Spirit, not by our own human ability. But then there is something, conversion, that is with the use of means. The Holy Spirit, once we have spiritual life, we're then that spiritual life is then brought to light through conversion. And that's where we begin then to understand what's going on. Uh, we are conscious of that work of faith and repentance. So that's when you see Jesus Christ for who he is. You see the gospel. You hear the gospel and believe it. And then you repent of your sins. That is conversion. And that's also the work of the Holy Spirit. So when I say that it's different from regeneration, I don't mean that it's a work of man. And that, that regeneration is the work of the Spirit. That is not true. They're both the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet we then become active in the, in the part of conversion, faith and repentance. Our faith is our faith, but it's given to us by God, and we exercise that faith that he's given us, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that does that. John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me, shall come to me he that cometh to me i will in no wise cast out that ties all of those things together those who were given by the father says all that the father given me shall come to me they will come to him in faith and repentance acts thirteen forty eight. when paul preached the gospel there uh to these to this crowd and and this i trust in this or i wouldn't be a preacher <laughs> paul preached the gospel who did the sorting out god did as many as were ordained to eternal life, what happened? They believed. Those who were not ordained to eternal life rejected that message. But those who were ordained to eternal life, it doesn't say all believed. Paul, not even Paul had that result. He didn't have everybody believe. But when he preached the gospel message there in Acts 13, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That was not uh, just because they figured it out or or they you know had the 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 
gumption to believe, and so they they went the last mile for Jesus and, and, and believed on him. It says they were ordained to eternal life, and therefore they believed. So all of these verses we're real familiar with. There's one thing that I always like to share when I talk about this topic because I think it's so, it kind of brings it all, you know, together in, in one, one analogy. So if we were to close off this building, cut off all the lights, cover all the windows, and you had absolute darkness in this room, let me tell you what that's a symbol of. That's a symbol of where we are in our relationship to God. Absolute darkness. And I mean no light at all. It is absolute darkness. That's total depravity. We are dead in trespasses and sin. There's no light. There's, no, there's nothing that we have. So it's absolute darkness. And if I were to come in and put a blind man in a chair in the middle of the room, so not only is there no darkness, but this man is blind. He cannot see. And then I put a picture of Jesus up on the wall. Now, if I come in and I shine a flashlight on that picture, am I helping the blind man? He still can't see it. The light is irrelevant because the man is blind. That's what happened when the gospel is preached to those who are not born again. The light's there. The message is there. But the man is blind. So what has to happen for the blind man to be affected by this? The blind man first has to be healed. So what if I came in the door and I healed the blind man, which I can't do? Can you do that? Is there any human who can do that? Could the blind man heal himself? No. It takes a supernatural work of God to heal the blind man. But God heals the blind man, and then I shine the light on the wall. What does the man see? He sees the gospel. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus for who he is. And then I would say this. Anyone who truly sees Jesus for who he is is not going to reject him. He's not going to reject him. The problem is they don't really see Jesus for who he is because they've not been born again. Those who reject the gospel are lost. The Bible tells us that very plainly. If they reject that message, they are lost. If they believe that message savingly, then they are one of God's elect. Now, one little other little caveat to put on that, because I think this gets said a lot. What about the poor individual who does believe, but he's not an elect? I just don't believe that person exists. That's not possible. If you're an elect of God, you're limiting God a, a lot there if you say that that's possible. God will get his message to that person. And he will make sure that they're born again and that they see and believe. So I don't believe that that's possible. Last, I'll close with this quote. The mission of the church is not to regenerate people. She is to preach the gospel whereby those whose hearts that have already been prepared in regeneration are made ready to embrace Christ through conversion. The gospel is good news to those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated. Paul said it is foolishness to everyone else. So that's what we believe. And so that's why we're not ashamed of the gospel is because we believe it's the work of God and it's the power of God. And so we're not ashamed of it because it's God's message. So let's go back and review real quickly and we'll close. In, in First Timothy, I mean, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. And because we don't have any fear, we're not to be ashamed. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel and of those truths of the gospel and the truth that Jesus has taught us in his word. Instead, we should, uh, we should share with as many as possible this glorious salvation that we read about in verse 9 and verse 10. And now in the next message, we're going to look at in verse 11 how, how God normally 
carries this out. Um, he, he says, uh, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. So we're going to get into that in the next message. But I hope those things have been a blessing to you and that we would all be encouraged not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ.